usually what I do for the episodes is I'll like record pre-roll after we record to just kind of give like a an intro to the episode. Um, I don't. I feel like we don't really need an intro to the episode because this one evolved really organically. So it's kind of like hard to go like we're going to talk about these things and then it's like list all the things that we talked about. <laughs> um, but also, uh, I guess like oh. Like it's just to acknowledge that it's been a hot minute since we recorded an episode and to kind of memorialize that we're all going through some shit right now. And um, it feels wrong to like, we're all white, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists, and in the time of Black Lives Matter, like our our absence and our silence has in a lot of ways been deliberate to, you know, stop and listen to the conversations that are happening from the Society for Black Archaeologists. And they've been holding some incredible workshops and panels that I think are honestly going to transform the shape of archaeology as we know it fingers yeah. crossed so, yeah i think uh, it's also important to highlight that we as like as you said we're all white but we also work in the whitest city in america that struggles in its own ways with highlighting people of color and native stories in the city itself so i think one of the widest cities we're not the widest we're not the widest major city i do not believe so i heard something about a place in northern michigan which makes sense or i don't know oh i haven't heard of it i don't know i i know that we're that's we're well well known and famous for that and i think the point also, or there's a good point to be made for the historic reason why we are the widest city, at least on the West Coast, if not the country. Yeah. You know, going back to the black exclusion laws and the whole reason why Oregon became a state in the first place was uh, Native American displacement. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a land war between the United States as it was then and the British and the various colonial holdings along the West coast. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where like, we have to just like stop talking for a little bit and, <laughs> and just like, listen to what's going on. And like uh, Portland, I think has a representation problem oh, yeah. where you know, like what a lot of people who've never been to Portland or don't live here know is Portlandia and it's Fred and Carrie getting into various mischiefs, going to brunch and stuff like that. And that's, I think that has really biased a lot of the representation of Portland. And a lot of people mimic that, like social media influencers just are falling over themselves to mimic that kind of template for how Portland is represented. But uh, it ignores the multi-ethnic society and the multi uh, like there's, there's a diversity of ideologies. There's a diversity of 
kind of life ways and approaches here that mm-hmm. makes Portland Portland, you know, and that's what makes it weird. And, and that's why we're all here and why we love it. Yeah. And that's why we're fighting to defend it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like very hot. <laughs> yeah. <Ooh. laughs> I'm feeling your words and I'm feeling the heat. <laughs> you can't get Tia any more excited right now. Yeah. Just woo. <laughs> Yes. Well, and also just to say as well that we've been having conversations among ourselves too on how to really kind of move forward on this. So it's it's not been tuning out. Is yeah. We, we've been actively listening. So recentering. Yes. And we'll we'll see how things play out. But it's been what six months officially. Something around there. It was January, February, even when we did the Chicago uh, Museum episode. Oh, yeah, you get, yeah. The yeah, Chicago the Chicago COVID. Museum oh, was, like was June, um, but the last time we saw each other in person was February. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think early March. Those are last. Yeah, it was right before mm. like kind of the lockdown yeah. started happening. Uh, I had just started to like kind of heal from broken ribs and y'all were making me laugh too much. Yep. (laughs) I remember. Gotcha, (laughs) bitch. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You've got some questions. You're feeling stressed, man. Something is glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should go. Okay. I think I'll take a break from shoveling food in my face for a little bit. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> since I got on the phone, I'm like, nom, 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 nom. I ate half a pizza today as well. Yes. Yeah. Do I it. had. Um, Congrats. I, <laughs> yeah. I like... picked up Rudy's on the way out of town yesterday. <laughs> yes. And I had a couple pieces. Took all of the racks out of the hotel fridge at the Best Western in order to cram the box in there. <laughs> it like was up like this, mm-hmm. and um, it sat in my car. My car sat in the shade all day, and I ate pretty all but like three pieces of it. So impressive. Uh, that's. Yeah. That's just killing the CRM archaeology like field <laughs> lunch game right there. <laughs> Bring a whole pizza. <laughs> I was like, oh, this special sounds really good. I'll get that. They're like, okay, I go to pick it up. And they're like, yeah, it only comes in a large. And I'm like, just me. Apparently. You don't have to upsell. I'm already in. I'm going <laughs> to. Yes. It was. Um, the special is the Harley Quinn, which is basically like pickles, banana peppers, barbecue sauce, the vegan Alfredo, and ranch, I want to say. It's wow. quite fantastic, actually. <laughs> I know, I was looking at it going, you know, that looks weird, but amazing. So you it lost me at pickles. <laughs> I love pickles. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Pickles be done. Do they belong on a pizza? This is maybe, maybe. (laughs) It's 2020, Tip. The world is changing. (laughs) Better get with it. 
the postmodernists won. There's no truth anymore. (laughs) Yeah, right. What is pizza topping? (laughs) Anything that fits on top. What are things? Have you ever read uh, Ian Hodder's Entanglement? Yes, I've read that. Um, I have also, I'm a better fan, although I tend to combine the theories, of um, uh, Ingold's um, dwellings. Yes. Um, So there's like one particular paper that most people know, but the book that it's in is a volume, like massive book. And I sort of I uh, took a lot, borrowed a lot from that for the um, theory that I used for the landscape um, business, but it's like, I don't remember, taskscapes is his term. And he talks about sort of how the landscape, and not just the landscape itself, but how the land and the relationship between the people and the land and the culture um, embody uh, the things or are embodied by the things that are made or done like the things yeah. that people do so it's like you can't really have baskets without the gathering places you can't really have stone tools without the procurement or the trade locations like there's a lot that kind of goes in that um, and you know where the hunting is, and that's some of the stuff that we talk about in archaeology. But it just kind of pulls everything together into yeah. a much more cohesive view. Um, and I don't see it used a whole lot, but I think it's quite fantastic. Um, so it's kind of this combination of entanglement and landscape theory. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I cited that uh, heavily in my thesis too, uh, and. I thought it was interesting because it kind of gave agency to the landscape. Yes. Yes, it does. Because as the landscape changes, you know, so changes everyone else. But it's like that change is not necessarily the doing of the people or the doing of anything in particular. It's the landscape itself and its response. Yeah. It's interesting because when you approach um, studying the way people interact with their landscapes and the resources on it from an approach like that, it makes everything so interlocked. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where entanglement made that, that kind of attempt at interlocking people with the things they work with. Um, I, I don't want really want to go any deeper on my feelings <laughs> about Ian Hodder because I feel like I'm going to get canceled by archaeologists. But <laughs> like, I'll, I'll just, it's fine. Ian, Ian Hodder you. has mixed feelings about Ian Hodder, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah I the first time I read Entanglement though it was like the very first line is what are things and. I had to like close the book and put it down for a minute and just be like, did my dude just take like a hefty bong rip and then decide to write a book? 
<laughs> I love the idea of being like reading that first line, closing the book and being like, that was a good read. <laughs> like, let's see, let's see if I can moving on to the next happen. one. <laughs> Just... <laughs> <laughs> What are things? What are things, man? Like, it is Stanford. But, but yeah, I think <laughs> yes. Tipton and I, I think, have complained about this a lot, that modern archaeology seems to like completely ignore that everything is on a landscape as a whole and that everything is yeah. interconnected. And like you can't just like – I'm not trying to be like – um Dunnel with the like sightless sight or shit, but like, <laughs> and I will stake that position. No, Dunnel. <laughs> um, but like, <laughs> like I, I, I think that like you have to acknowledge that like yes, sites are good for like you know organizing and having a record and stuff, but like they're on a landscape which dictated, as you guys have said why people did what they did, how they moved, why they were using spots as opposed to not using spots, what kind of tools they made, what kind of tools they didn't make. And I think it's so indicative of the the modern age that we don't look at things as being so important as in the past. Like it took time to make the shit you had. So like those things had importance and they were so connected yeah. to where you were because, you know, if you don't have obsidian, either you have to trade and give things to get that to make the thing. And that now, you know, modern culture since, you know, the fifties or, you know, forties, you know, is consume and get rid of consume and get rid of consume and get rid of and you know we're very rotating things don't have that much meaning um we're also not connected to the places anymore of of our stuff yeah yeah, yeah we don't know where any of it that. comes from and even china. when we do it's so hard to find. <laughs> deeply <And> connected <laughs> to china <laughs> we are all deeply connected to china yeah it allows like a certain Sorry. level of kind of like not just detachment from the places where our things come from but like an abstraction from any sort of understanding of like the political and social and economic conditions that make those things mm -hmm. oh yeah and it's funny to see like everything that's happening in 2020 and particularly in portland oregon <laughs> seeing those contradictions <laughs> laid bare yeah mm -hmm. and and just seeing people saying no like we th these have material impacts on people you know, like when it, when it comes to enforcing state violence and, and or like to upholding the state, there are people who bear the brunt of upholding the state. And that's what we're seeing in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I think oddly the pandemic and this stuff has kind of recentered our thinking like you know since you since you can't just go to target really and pick up your stuff you actually have to think about where your stuff is coming from a bit more and i think people are slowly starting to see that 
that that disconnect with Mm -hmm. your stuff leads to a disconnect on so many levels. Like people don't know where their food comes from. Like when you ask people like, where do chickens come? Like where do eggs come from? They're like, oh, the dairy section at the grocery store. And you're like, but eggs aren't, aren't a dairy. Like that's chicken, bro. And like, it's, I think people are slowly starting to realize like, oh, this disconnect <laughs> kind of leads to a broader problem of like not really connecting with people, places, or things very much. Yeah. And eventually those material consequences will boomerang right back to you. Slap you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Just jump out like of a, a hole and cha-cha. Yeah. <laughs> like a wet fish. <laughs> Slap. <laughs> I'm more into the Swedish fish kind of thing. <laughs> Laugh with the sweetest fish. I'm just uh, picturing a boomerang fish. Just like you throw the fish and this fish comes like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Fuck you, boomerang fish. <laughs> uh, no, definitely I like the I totally agree. The shortages, especially on things like meat or other food items, um, have definitely especially for an elongated period of time or even conversations about like, you know, there's growing all this food away because restaurants are open and it's kind of like, Oh, that actually, you know, just the fact that how food is raised and where it's distributed and how it actually gets to people um, and shutting down restaurants, you know, country and even worldwide how that impacted the food production system and when we as a country didn't step in to reorganize things to try and make sure that food that was not being used was being redistributed to people who wouldn't or had trouble getting access with things closing down so much went to waste um and i think liam between news stories or just people really thinking critically of like why is there not I don't know, fill in the blank. In Portland, what was it? Kale? (laughs) (laughs) That went missing. Um, That was one of the first items that was, there was a shortage of. And so we got lampooned nationally for like, oh, wow, Portland's out of kale. What are they going to (laughs) do? Yep. Galvanized us. (laughs) You see what we're doing now? This is what happens when we run out of kale. This is what happens when we run out of kale. We'll tear down the state. (laughs) Give us our fucking smoothies already. If I don't have my green smoothie, I will be anarchy. (laughs) The feds were the moderate option. Just wait when the spinach. (laughs) Just wait when the spirulina goes. All hell's going to break loose. They're all going down. I know about hummus. (laughs) Kirsten, that's a really good point. It's it's like poverty and food scarcity are decisions. You know, it's like that's a decision in the supply chain. And it's an economic decision to allocate food where it goes. Uh, And and I've seen people say things, you know, uh, there've been like viral tweets or memes and stuff that say like poverty is a policy failure. 
stuff like that. And so it's just kind of interesting to look at yeah. that from an anthropological perspective in terms of like, you know, like we, we, we live in this very dynamic environment where uh, resources and wealth are going in directions that they probably shouldn't be. Yeah. I think one of the things that drives me nuts about memes, especially political memes, particularly when I agree with them, is that it doesn't actually help anyone who doesn't understand that. Right. It's really just like intentionally preaching to the choir and trying to gather troops that all think the same. You're not actually convincing anyone who doesn't know or realize that the way that the supply chain works is due to the way that our economy is structured, which is directly, it is a direct impact of policy. Yeah. And the way that different things are set up. Um, I mean, there's, there's lots of causes and that's its own rabbit hole to go down that I don't think we are wanting to do right now, but um, it's, it's something that, you know, especially people who live in that, state of poverty have no idea you know they they know what they know and what they have contact with the fact that they live in a food desert where there's no produce is which is why they don't know how to cook produce or don't like the taste of fresh produce because they could only have things out of a can you know these are things that are due to those decisions whether it be anywhere from the fact that those areas have, um, when there's a grocery store there, they need really high security or they knowingly will have high rates of um, theft because people can't always afford to buy the groceries. Um, so instead of putting in like policies or programs to help feed people that are having a hard time making ends meet or making sure that people have the means make ends meet or even that food is more affordable in those areas like none of those things actually you know come to fruition when it comes to places that are you know that have that high rate of theft so grocery stores close and then all of the fresh food disappears and all you have are minute markets so everyone eats like shit and fast food that's a summary of that rabbit hole but it's a good summary and a good segue to other policies yes. that sometimes have failures <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a really forced segue i'm sorry it's okay thank you uh, i'm notorious for really really bad jokes and really forced segues <laughs> Hey, you remember to make the segues. That's that's a start. More than I often do. Um, yes, so this, uh, Katie, actually, you were in on it, too. I feel like I've been talking a lot. You want to give an <laughs> overview? No pressure. Brief overview. Gosh, well, I was like, I feel bad. I was cooking dinner at the same time as the hearing was going on. Um, so I'm going to do that just say that right now 
I guess like the overview of the overview is for folks who are not in Oregon, uh, our National Register of Historic Preservation. Historic Places. Places, sorry. uh, Framework is uh, under debate for taking revisions right now. Yes. And so there's, the, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say there's actually two levels of that. So the national is under revision um, for uh, the 36 CFR 61, which is the implementation of the state and local programs um, on a national level. This uh, meeting that Katie and I attended is actually on the state level. It's the state administration of the National Register program in Oregon. So these policy changes are only specific to Oregon and how Oregon carries out that national law. Um, So as a brief clarification before you got too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah, they're proposing updates. I'm gonna read just what they sent. Do it. Great, yeah. The state, the Oregon state is proposing updates to the Oregon Administrative Rules, or the OAR, that govern how the state administers the Federal National Register of Historic Places program, which lists buildings, districts, and other sites important to local, state, or national history. The Oregon State Historic Preservation Office, the SHPO, an office of the Oregon Parks and Rec Department administers the local program, which is run by the National Park Service. And they are looking to, at the state level, um, change some of the administrative rules. Yes. Yay, emails. I got it. Yay. <laughs> Good job. So some of these rules are clarifications um, that were necessary or were deemed necessary after a couple of different National Register nominations that became extremely complex and took way longer than they should have to resolve, and one of which is still not resolved to this day. So some of those are specific definitions, others are clarifications on what happens when a National Register property is not passed by or approved by the National Park Service and is kicked back. Um, Previously, it was just like it was returned and lived in limbo land. So um, because there were so many people who were stakeholders in both of those situations, they kind of wanted to know what to do next or where to go from here. So that's something that they're clarifying and working on. Um, And the other definitions were how to define owners or persons. Um, And owners are those who get a vote in whether the National Register property is approved or not. and. Katie, you can correct me, or Chris even, if I remember correctly, the way that this uh, National Register generally works is once something is proposed, um, it can be, it has to be approved by um, landowners, but can only be disapproved by landowners if 
the majority of landowners object, something like that. So that's been a challenge when you have more than you can count. (laughs) And that's kind of where some of that came up. I'm I'm not going to go into all of that insanity, but... um, but like I guess the ultimate goal with some of these changes because of what's happened in the past, like the goal is one vote for one property. It's not the amount of acreage you have. Yep. If you own property in that area, you get one vote instead of So there's a recent historical context to the issue of one vote per property that I think people outside of Portland and even I think a lot of people in Portland aren't aware of. And uh, I I don't really fully understand the context of it, but uh, Kirsten, you've, you've described the issue that happened in Eastmoreland. Could you kind of give everybody a summary of uh, how it happens that there could possibly be more than one vote per property? (laughs) So, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I don't know the situation that clearly and anyone who is involved is totally free to contact us and clarify to my understanding how it went is you had owners on say multiple properties. um, And instead of being just themselves, they, ended up creating multiple trusts to get additional votes. So legally, or in a legal sense, as we all know, corporations are people, right? So our trusts, um, limited liability companies, uh, organization, municipal organizations, and so forth. So if someone creates multiple owners of a property, as in legal entities, each legal entity gets a vote by law, by the basic definition of what a person is, right? Or owner is. Unfortunately, this means that in the Eastmoreland situation, um, from what I've heard, there were some individuals that had created about 5,000 or so uh, individual trusts that each created a vote. So this creates a little complicated problem when you have really like one person or one family maybe might have a max of five votes is trying to create additional votes so that they can overshadow and out um, vote the crowd, the, the community basically. And that is a really big problem when it comes to, let's just call it entitlement, or um, I'm blanking on the word that I'm really wanting to use, uh, kind of like entitlement, I don't know. Any thoughts? It's like the ability to, to really like strong arm whatever you want into happening, that would be I don't know why wrangle came to mind, but that's not the word you're grasping for. I have Sorry. no idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm blaming the heat. 
That's it's right. hot here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like NIMBY isn't enough of a word for that. And, and NIMBY, no. for anybody who doesn't know, is an acronym that means not in my backyard. And it's people who generally um, apply their uh, authority as landowners to prevent um, social change or, in most cases, social progress. And that's where a lot of the criticism against um historic preservation and nrhp comes about is um nrhp and historic preservation can be tools for good but they can also be uh in the wrong hands uh tools to allow nimbys to say uh no i don't want poor people to live in my neighborhood i don't want you know x to happen in my neighborhood like things like that like and in portland you know we've we've seen it famously applied uh against uh wasn't the eastmoreland case uh so yes. that they wouldn't have a homeless shelter nearby um i don't know if it was a homeless shelter i know that they were trying to prevent um low-income housing from being put in that's right yeah so, i forget which neighborhood it was that applied <laughs> Uh, historic preservation to prevent a homeless shelter from happening. It, it was somewhere in like deep southeast, but I can't remember where. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know I I vaguely remember what you're referring to, but I can't remember the neighborhood. Um, but the, it, that is a, a big problem, and it is one of the arguments against it. Um, and I think that is really rooted in the property ownership situation and the fact that persons or quote unquote owners as defined legally are the ones who get the vote versus the people who live in the neighborhood, which should be the people who get a vote, not necessarily the people who own the property. Because let's say you have a neighborhood where most of the property, and this is something that's common throughout the US and especially in Portland, where a lot of the property in the neighborhood is owned by people who don't even live in the city or in the state. And you have someone who wants to preserve the feel of the neighborhood by preserving the older houses and the multiplexes and the historic apartment buildings so that, you know, these, they can potentially get funds for upgrades or be able to, um, maintain the property without having to adhere to specific codes that can be expensive or impossible to implement in old apartment buildings. Um, you get, the owners are then notified because anyone can nominate, right? So you get a renter or a coalition of renters that decide they want to nominate this neighborhood and you get all the the owners who are notified and all of the owners don't want this, right? They, they just, want to say sell or tear down or do what they want and not have to worry about the preservation. They don't live there. They don't really care about the neighborhood. Like this, this is a problem um, that I can see really preventing the national register when it comes to um, preserving neighborhoods and preserving um, the feel of communities from really doing what it should. So um, or what it can do. So unless 
something changes in some of that wording in that direction, it may have to be at the national level, unfortunately, for that to really be able to be implemented. And that's where in my comment um, that I made, my official comment that I made with them was uh, that I realized that this may not be something that can be resolved in this situation, but this is a problem. Wait, so is the new rule saying that one property, one vote? Or is the new rule saying that based off the amount of land you have, you get a better, like you get more vote for more land? I'm confused as to what the rule is changing to. Yeah. So, go ahead. Oh, I, no, I, go ahead. I yeah. think, because I, I, to me it sounds like, yeah, one landowner, one vote makes sense. Like, yeah, they do tend to get a little, as Chris said, like it can turn kind of nimby or, you know, landowners can group together and be like, you know, strong arm other landowners to be like, we're all going to vote as a block. But I don't know, to me, it sounds like, you know, we do have to give them a say and that one landowner, yeah. one vote is good. But I guess, is that what the rule is going to? Or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I so think that's what they're trying to tip towards. Okay, okay. It's like explicit, but because in the past, if you had amount of property, you, you had like a, I don't want to say a larger vote per se. Okay. So in here, the revision is stated as owner and which is defined um, as defined as it's refer referencing the 36 CFR 60, which is the National Register um, code on this, uh, but it means the owner of fee simple absolute or fee simple defeasible estate title to a oh. property as shown in the property tax records of the county where the property is located, including but not limited to trusts, limited liability corporations, and any other legal entity that can hold fee simple absolute or fee simple defeasible title to real property within the state of Oregon. Uh. So that's, so we had a, a talk at um, our agency today about um, a govern, uh, what is it, a U.S. tribal law, um, uh -huh. and that fee simple title is like the highest level of land ownership that you can have, and that it I can see now what you're saying, Kristen, that it has, it can cause some problems because in more rural areas, the fee simple title is usually the person that lives on that property or they're like renting to a person who runs that property. So it's more like accurate in that one to one sort of ratio. But if you get into cities and more populated areas, you know, I can see what you're saying now that that fee simple limited liability company can become a much bigger issue. And then when you have multiple, prop, like multiple properties owned by one individual, that therefore gives that individual, you know, a lot of, a lot of sway. And I don't know how you would, you know, if you have a fee simple title, it's the highest land ownership level you can be. So like, there's not, a great way to combat that, but I can see now being like, Ugh. yeah, I, I think it's a problem that 
unfortunately, there's not much that at least I can see, and I'm not a legal scholar or a, a land ownership sort of person, but yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking of my street as a case study for this. There are around 15 houses or, you know, separate properties, plats, whatever on our, on our street, just on, on our block here. And one landowner from San Diego, that's an absentee landlord owns at least three of them. And, Mm -hmm. uh, is like for, for lack of a better term, kind of a slumlord. Like they, they are not good to their tenants and they put their tenants in some bad situations. Um, and it's, it's been kind of a, a source of debate on our block, but of the 15, I would say at least eight, uh, different properties on the block are rented and most of the owners of, of the properties that are rented live in San Diego. Mm. Wow. And you can find all this out on portlandmaps.com, like who owns what property and, um, it's public information you can find out through the County too. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's just kind of interesting to think that just locally, the say of how our landscape is determined um, belongs to people in San Diego who, for all of our knowledge, the, the folks that I talked to on our block for the past four years have never been here and have probably never lived here either. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you. Sorry, Sorry go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was like, are we willing to try this out and like put the rule changes to the test and be like, so this is these are the new rules. Let's try and nominate a neighborhood and or even just a small plot, you know, yeah, sector and see how just to kind of show. But that's just. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. Tib is like. You know, I it, it's hard and scary to change rules and laws because it takes so much work to get to get them changed, and then if it doesn't work out, like having the process to go back and refix, like relook at it. But I think that that hits on a good point that there is something to say about trying things out and then realizing, like, okay, this didn't work. Like, all right, let's go back to the table. Let's go back to talking about it. Let's go back to the process. And like, it sucks, but honestly, there's so many rules and regulations in the U.S. that we all just kind of give up on because it's like, well, fuck, it's not working. But, but we don't know, we don't, the time it takes to sit and have the discourse back and forth. And that unfortunately we live in a time in which the, and I'm not sure if there ever was a time in which the discourse actually goes anywhere positive beyond people being like i have a feeling and so we'll be like yeah. well i also have a feeling um so but i think that like yeah there is a sense something to be said about like i don't know is this the way to do it like is this the way because other than that i don't quite see unless you say that landowners would have to band together as 
in like groupings and then come as a group of individuals to this process saying we the assigned individuals approach this issue in this way like coming together as a assigned group Uh, again i'm not a legal scholar and i don't have the words to describe what i'm saying but that's the only other way that i could see giving landowners their their due because you know although sometimes they can be very frustrating it's very like they have a right to be able to yeah to say what goes on in there but i think this also goes back to something that tip and i and all of us have said multiple times is that landowners are unfortunately not very educated about what this all means and that we as archaeologists suck at telling them because we're so deeply ingrained in our Mm -hmm. own view of like everything needs to be preserved and well we're not practitioners either like i feel like the national historic preservation like that we're not fully like we're not historic preservationists we're archaeologists and we're trying to sorry this is my feeling of like grab at this preservation lot but we also need to know about section 110 and we need to be able to do nominations and it's just a lot yeah and us archaeologists especially like we nominate and then what do we do about it we don't touch those properties usually much at least i feel maybe i'm wrong but I feel like I've the only people I've seen are like, I'm going to nominate this property. It's important. And then they just, if it gets nominated, they're not the ones who are going to be involved in that property's maintenance and making sure that it meets standards and it keeps upkeep. And yeah, so I, there's a lot to be said that like, yeah, there are some issues with it, but like also archaeologists need to be, way more involved in explaining what all this means and what it's actually going to do to people and not get butthurt when people are like, this could really affect me. Like people who have properties that are historic that some archaeologists might want on the register, but the individual who lives on that property is like, yeah, I might get a small tax break, but like I can't afford to replace copper pipes if my copper current copper pipes like Mm-hmm. go down the tube yeah and so they're like I can't I can't be like it's it's money and time so I, I don't know maybe maybe I'm spouting some unpop opinions but <laughs> <laughs> well some of that some of that actually because that that's that kind of slides into some misconceptions with the national register properties because if a house is listed on the National Register, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily use all period items um, or that the house can't be updated the way you want it to. There are restrictions um, that are usually set by the localities, not by the state or by the federal government. Um, It's usually the neighborhood or the city or the county that set the restrictions or such. Like there's a little town in Southern Oregon um, that has a, it's like basically the city is a historic district. And so they have a very strict policy for the paint colors that you can pick to paint your house with. It's like a historic palette that you have to choose from whether or not your house is historic or not. Like it is, it is a really interesting little town um, that 
you know, has all this going on, but at the same time, they can't fund and keep open their historic museum. Mm. Um, just due to disinterest and people not for whatever reason, um, funding it slash the people who work for the museum. I don't know if they just don't have the right people on staff to help with fundraising or, or what exactly happened, but a number of years ago, like all of the public funding for the museum fell through, everything kind of collapsed in that historic, um, historical society. Um, and basically the only thing they maintain is their collections facility mm. at this juncture. Like they own several, properties one of them they use for fundraising to help upkeep the properties but a lot of stuff's just kind of not doing so hot um and a lot of that gets into appreciation for you know history and not everyone has to have appreciation for history but i think part of this gets into like if you're talking to communities that find or have in the past found community in a location or a neighborhood um, and they were unable to keep that neighborhood and let's just poke at gentrification being an issue um, that has been of key interest in portland and elsewhere over the last 20 years or so this process of gentrification would have been in some places, I think, if not halted, at least slowed by positive, like taking the ability to take advantage of historic preservation laws on right. Like if people knew what they were doing with them. Um, but that's not the way it played out because in a lot of those neighborhoods, they're low income neighborhoods or ethnic neighborhoods and they don't have the resources or the time or the know-how to really carry that out. So this is something that you see play out in urban areas across the US. And that's, that's I think, where I was trying to go with the, the idea that I feel like people in neighborhoods that live there and have lived there historically, say for a couple of generations or more, should have say in how to preserve their um, their neighborhood if they feel that they would like to do so, rather than the owners updating everything and charging twice as much rent and evicting people just because they want to update their house that they own so they can charge more rent. Mm. Um, I know that that's something that has been going on in town here for a while and it's just bad to watch yeah it's i didn't think about it until we started talking how multifaceted this one issues is that on the surface it can seem so simple of like one landowner or one thing or and i can also understand the the reasoning behind like well, I have like 90% of the land here that this thing is going to put put on. I'd like to have yeah. a bigger say. Like I can I can get it. I don't think it is the best way of doing things, but I can understand the reasoning behind it, but yeah. It's it's very complex and I don't know 
either direction what yeah. would be the best way to go about solving it. But were there other contentious issues of things that they proposed or was that the biggest? That was the biggest. Can you think of anything, Katie? Am I missing something? No, I think it, the way it went was they, they did like a five minute presentation on what National Register is. So they mm-hmm. got the federal and then they presented what the state does and then they briefly talked about the rule changes and then they opened it up for questions mm. before going into the public hearing uh, record part of it mm. so it wasn't super in-depth it was just allowing kind of that comment period yeah. to kind of happen gotcha um, so, yeah so nothing really stood out from when they gave the presentation it was just this is what we're doing. Got any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, one thing that, that did come up that I thought was interesting when Katie and I were reading the, trying to read through all of the rules beforehand was that the involvement of the tribes was light, um, put it mildly. Um, And I would be interested to know how exactly all that went down Um, because I'm, you know, I did an an internship with SHPO and I know that they generally have a pretty good relationship with the tribes. I mean, they, they communicate with all of them regularly. Right. Um, But so they had sent out um, according to um, the website in the documentation, they had sent out invitations to all of the tribes to be uh, to participate in the process of um, discussing and deliberating over the rule changes. They put together a like a committee. When was that letter sent? I don't know. They gave them, I think it was thirty days um, or something to the that. Well, I'm interested to, to see, because depending on when they sent that letter, and I'm assuming that this was a much longer process than having started this year, but like, oh. at, like if it came th- in 2019, a majority of tribes were shut down or being like, I have got 6 billion other things to pay attention yeah. to. So if they sent that, like that to me doesn't like, that didn't count as consultation. Yeah. You did not conduct consultation if you sent yeah. it at any point in 2019 well, and even in 2020 or 2020 sorry 2020 yeah. <laughs> oh, i got sorry. hella years wrong <laughs> i was thinking oh. covid19 and i was like it, the year is currently 2019 and i was like nah bitch <laughs> it is not <laughs> sorry my bad that's all right yeah, yeah no it's i think it was january so it was this year i believe and i could be wrong yeah i can't you remember yeah, so change all the dates that I just complained about to 2020. If you sent anything in 2020, you didn't conduct consultation at the end. <laughs> yeah, like January, you're kind of on, like, things were still okay. responsive-ish. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you get to February and March, it's... Yeah, I don't have... Oh, the meetings were held in January, February, and March, so they would have been sent, like, November or December, I think. Okay. Okay. That's, that's better. It would have been like, we invite you to do this 
and then no one uh, decided to be involved, like there was no response, but there was staff from three tribes that did contribute um, some off the record or uh, informal uh, preliminary con commentary to the, the group that was doing the work on reviewing some of SHPO's proposed rule changes and, and how to, and uh, in, in creating suggestions um, around that. So I do wonder how much, and I have, do not have answers to these, and I'm totally making all the assumptions, the wrong assumptions, I'm sure. Um, I do question how much if any of the tribal suggestions were incorporated into the official um, suggestions that were given to SHPO for the rule changes. Because it, it was just, a, it was a committee which was made up of stakeholders, all of which were non-tribal members outside of these preliminary comments that were submitted to the committee from what I glean and understand from the website. So this is all like totally, you know, third party, yeah. you know, secondhand information, but. Well, what we were finding for finding this information, a lot of it was kind of buried. I don't want to say buried. You, you, it wasn't outright there. You kind of have to click and they don't just say we're doing it. these change. Yeah. These changes, you kind of like what, Kirsten had to do was like a side by side of like okay the, the these are the current regulations and here's here are their proposed changes they don't do them side by side for you mm. so you understand what is going on so there's a lot of things happening yeah making it easy so I mean I think the process could have been presented more clearly um, I am curious as to how many people outside of the Eastmoreland situation um, had logged in because that was aside from, I think, us that I knew, the only people that were there um, and SHPO staff. So, yeah, that was, it was interesting. Um, I didn't necessarily expect a whole lot more than what we experienced, but I had hope. Um, and I would, I would like to be able to find a way to get people more involved in, in some of this stuff. And it's hard. I mean, this stuff's complicated and more complicated than it should be. Most, like you guys were saying, most archaeologists don't know how it works. Yeah. It also makes me think that in terms of getting people more involved, that um, getting... I know that there's there's a long history of very robust efforts in Portland at um, tenants unions hmm. getting developed. Um, and I wonder if it would be productive to get them involved in future conversations in terms of kind of who is represented in the landscape that is urban Portland as it is rapidly developing and it's been rapidly developing for decades, but you know, yeah. it, it kind of goes back to that question of like, who has ownership over 
any of these decisions, you know, and, and if it's not the people who actually live there, then I don't know that that's really, um, kind of like a just or democratic it yeah. law that we can really defend. Well, I mean, you know, Tia made some good points that like, you know, landowners should have a say, but especially in situations like you were giving Chris with your, the way that your neighborhood is structured, the tenants should also have a say because they live there. And I say that not just in this situation, but in other community situations. Um, I think we talked, uh, Chris, I think, uh, recently about um, the weird structure that Portland has with its neighborhood associations. Yeah. Which are different than, and I think this is part of the problem and why the change, why they're run horribly today is because I think people come in thinking that they're more like homeowners associations start running them like them, but is it's intended to be like a local representation for the city in order to meet the needs of the community. Yeah. And I've heard stories and you were saying you'd heard good stories about how they used to work and yeah. that is not anywhere near what they do now. No, it's like, it used to be like, Hey, our roads are in terrible condition Yo, city of Portland, uh, Portland Bureau of Transportation, allocate some funding in the next fiscal year to fix our roads. They're garbage. Uh, and now it's it's just it, like, exactly like you said. It, it's being treated like a homeowners association. And uh, that is also kind of a, a tool in the wrong hands is just – yeah. doing some real harm, like material harm to people who live here. I am kind of intrigued that they uh, decided to continue with these meetings and hearings, especially during this time period. Yeah. Um, that, I don't know, like getting people involved, this is important, but to be honest and speaking as an archaeologist, like I've got so much other stuff to think about and worry about, like to add one more thing, like, I don't know. Cause it, it's like, I'm thinking about rural communities as well. Like they have stuff going on and things that they're worried about. And you know, they've, you know, Portland and cities have so much going on and stuff to worry about. So I, I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't know. It seems kind of right now, and this is like no tea, no shade to Shippo, but like y'all didn't have anything else to freaking do right now besides putting a pause? Yeah, I think they were legally required to follow through on their obligation to carry out these changes. Um, they started before, as you mentioned, all of this went down. Um, and I don't know that they have the mechanism to press pause as much as I think they would have liked to on the situation. I hope, I um, hope so. Cause God dang. <laughs> like, like there's gotta be something. So it's like, does a clock get triggered when you start proposing? Yeah. 
yeah, there's a clock for all of this stuff. There's specific timelines. Take the batteries out. Right? <laughs> just, <laughs> I know. I know some of the some of those clocks have definitely been put on pause, um, and some are more forced into those pauses. Some are given a little bit more leeway for different, you know, government functions. But I feel like this was also because it's been such a big situation just trying to get answers to people that are bugging them about all of this um might be part of it um hmm. and i had another point and i forgot what it was hmm. i don't remember um was it about them being used as homeowners associations <laughs> no but i could definitely go go on about that. <laughs> I could rant all oh day about that. So yeah. I see it for another episode. That should be like a little that, vessel in itself. That should be, yes. I heard some good stories about my, I heard there used to be like block parties and stuff regularly that the we still have block parties. Around. Well, before the plague of times, we had block parties every <laughs> year. Uh, our, nice. our little block, like it's, it's interesting that our little block, like we all know each other. We all have a Google sheet that has each other's contact info on. That's cool. And we have two block parties a year. Nice. You know, like I said, before the plague times. So it, it's like our one of our block parties is usually in August, and I know that's not going to happen this year. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, Usually happens around October, um, but we also, you know how like in Portland, there's the easement between uh, like the sidewalk and the street, that little strip of, of grass. Yeah. Um, a lot of people grow gardens and stuff in there. And I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's the same way in, in other neighborhoods, but like in our neighborhood, just having had conversations with our neighbors and stuff, anything that's grown in the easement is fair game. It's intended for the community. And so we have some people on our street who grow like pumpkins for the kids that, that oh, live here. Nice. Like every Halloween, like the, the kids just come and get pumpkins from whatever grows in the easement. Uh, there's a bad ass blackberry patch in one of the <laughs> easements. And I go there, uh, they're, they're just starting to ripen now. So I've been going there almost every day. And uh, me and Artie feast on some blackberries. And then, <laughs> like, North Portland has some serious uh, plum action going on. There's some badass plum trees in the easements. That's uh, cool. But that's just kind of, like, the thing, you know? It's, like, this this kind of, like, uh, you know, this thing for the community that people do it for no other reason than it's for the community. Um yeah. And I, I hope that that's the spirit and intent behind these these changes is to preserve, uh, you know, that kind of character that is Portland, that, that um, you know, fo folks look out for the community. Because um, what happened in Eastmoreland was not folks looking out for the community. And so no. it's kind of disappointing to, to hear that they had, 
I mean, they're entitled to representation, but it's just disappointing to hear that, you know, like this all, like all of this basically started because of them. Right. And, yeah. uh, for, for that, it basically to be a conversation between them and Shippo and other interested parties, when we could have had a lot more representation elsewhere, um, it seems like a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things um, I was talking to someone the other day that I see in a hopeful way of what is coming out of all of the craziness that's going on in Portland right now is that it's really pulling people together. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I see a lot of people coming together and sticking up for each other and people going out and showing up to the protests now that they are like crazy um, and more people showing up at the nighttime, you know, tiny war situation that aren't ever usually going to protests protests like these are not people who normally would go these are not people who like to incite that sort of anger or you know have that kind of mentality but just the fact that there is such an impingement on the rights of people to demonstrate and the type of retaliation that we're having is not just intense, but it's specifically the type of retaliation from the federal government that we've gone to war with other countries over. Right. And people see that. And yeah. I think there's been a lot of coming together to not only protest, but also people supporting the protesters. There's been a lot of people like coming together to just support their community and uh, help each other out. I think not just through COVID, but even more intensely recently. Yeah. I agree. I have seen a lot of uh, people coming together. I do have one thing though. Like I do understand that uh, East Moreland was kind of the thing that spurred this off, but I think it's important to realize and to highlight that these rules are not just only going to affect Oh, yeah. Like they are also going to have big consequences or, you know, big effects in rural environments and that, you know, yeah. with just focusing on the city, you know, this, this comment is like going off into like kind of a, a wormhole, but like, it's only acknowledging like city and rural communities already have a big problem with so much being focused on how things affect the large cities and not what affects small rural communities and that this is going to affect them either positively or negatively and that it's important to realize that uh if that even though this was kicked off by east moreland that they aren't the only ones who will see this rule come through. So I think that it's important for us that even though we all live in Portland to remember those those rural communities that, you know, might be located. Yeah. And might be located on some big landscape sites that could be affected by this landowner change or potentially other changes as well. So I just want to put the, that little, yes. And I know we all know, but like for listeners as well to that, like, it's important to remember the rural communities as well. Yeah. That's a really good point to you. Cause like 
that tension between land ownership and representation, I think might be even more fraught in rural communities. Mm, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, just thinking, thinking of like ranch, this. like ranchers, you know, like there are like ranching development corporations that own like vast swaths of land, but the people who work on that land and live on that land don't have the same representation as the people or corporations or trusts that own that land. Mm-hmm. And that those rural communities, it's usually not buildings or groups of buildings that are going to get protected. It's land. It is yeah. actual farmable, arable ranching land that is going to get affected by national historic properties. And they are starting to do more like archaeological landscape properties getting nominated and accepted onto the register. And that's going to affect these farmers who are going to be like, if this gets on the register, what does that mean for my, my wheat and my grasses? Like, I mean, I think. I do want to say that that, that it doesn't always spell a death sentence to farmland. No, but they, that's what they think. Yes. That's why, that's why I want to make that. (laughs) I'm like that's there's a couple of things I want I wanted I want to clarify too for any listeners with National Register so archaeologists usually work on determining eligibility not actually nominating actual nominations for archaeology is is extraordinarily underrepresented on the register especially out west out here um, because there's little incentive um, and meaning to doing that. Um, On the East Coast or in other areas where it's on private property, there's a little bit more incentive to it, but like around here, you know, it's, it's good to know that things are eligible because that way they can be at least acknowledged, if not outright protected, they can be watched out for and evaluated continuously which is where all of C- so much of CRM work comes from. But it's the, the actual nomination and approval and listing on the National Register is an entirely different process. Mm. And that's usually more often done with historic properties or preservation, usually buildings. But isn't one of the... Like, I, I completely agree, but isn't there a contentious nomination register for an archaeological district in on the coast of Oregon? Uh, there was, um, and that's where there was a lot of misunderstanding on what that would mean. Um, the reality of it is if that had been listed, it would not have changed any... Um, any of the laws. It would not have changed any of the applicable uh, like evaluations or conditions or anything that they would normally be able to do with their land. The only difference would be that it would be known and that there would be an inventory of it. Depending on what it was, on the rare occasion, there might be an access issue for the tribes in order to honor a, um, a, like a, and I don't know if this is specifically attributed, like 
applicable to that situation, but in some areas of Oregon and other parts of the U.S., when if there is a resource on private land, depending on the treaty, there may be a treaty obligation that that landowner has to work with the tribes or tribal members for access. Like they, they, they have to give access. Mm. And that's whether or not it's recognized by the National Register or not. So the benefit to the tribe would be that they would have it known that it was recognized as being ancestral to them. It, it was all a recognition bit. The, the protections wouldn't have changed. However, it would have helped enforce the standing laws that a lot of the neighboring municipalities and such were out of compliance with. So there, that, there was a problem around some of those larger projects going on in that area in complying with um, 106 and other like NEPA laws and trying to get people to be like, no, you, you, this is, you have to do this. This is a you know, federal law, this is a permit, this is how this all works. So a lot of it was just, it was an opportunity to educate people and to help keep them out of trouble and give them an opportunity to learn about, you know, the history of the area in to a, a certain degree that the tribe was willing to share with the community. Mm. But there, the challenge was, is the, from what I saw, is that, so in the notification, they gave, I think, 30 or 60 days notice, but they can give up to like, what was it, 75 days? So they didn't really, I think they could have done a better job, they being like Chippo and possibly even other, you know, interested parties um, in notifying landowners. Granted, there are thousands of landowners in that area, so it's 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 a very it was a huge undertaking for as we mentioned less than five people to <laughs> to carry out. Like that's the other thing: implementing some of these giant projects, you really need more bodies to do this properly. And I think that may be where that fell short. Um, but there wasn't proper education. People came out mad and swinging, but they didn't really quite understand. And the tribe did their best to, to try and help explain things. But that is only helpful when people are able and willing to listen um, and hear something other than you're, you're going to take my, my land, you're going to take my things, when that's not the reality. So that's kind of where all of that landed and being privileged enough to be kind of in the middle of that evaluation um, was a blessing. It was a definite eye-opening window into that whole nest of how the National Register nominations work, um, how the community and how the interested parties can have such a differ, different um, angles and opinions 
and it's not that anyone was particularly trying to be, you know, angry or was totally wrong, but it's just different perspectives. And it really required everyone being willing to sit and listen to each other and speak openly. And I think that some people on both sides were able to do that, but there were definitely some people in the community who had a really hard time listening. Um, and that's, that's just what I saw in that situation. So I know that it was also the first uh, traditional cultural property nomination in Oregon, and it was massive. So I think um, if that were to happen again, need to start smaller <laughs> so that, you know, the, the process can kind of be carried out as a test, you know, um, or a, a litmus test, like, like Katie, like you were suggesting, like, let's try this out and see how it works. Like, you know, see, see yeah. how, how this functions in real time, in real life. It kind of seems to be one of the themes for 2020 is um, things are going to move real fast and loose and we just have to be ready to be flexible and adaptive and really quick to fix things that break. Yeah. As best as we can, but just yeah. understanding of each other. Yeah. Is a big part of it. I have no segue. <laughs> We're out of segues, folks. Yes. Sorry well, if I um, did that. I don't know. I feel like I was trying to answer a question, but I don't know if I totally went off on a different derailed my point. Well, it was the original question was about uh, the TCP. Yeah. And I, I think that it, I think you gave a really good context to okay. like kind of the social environment that made that TCP happen. Um, I think the only thing I can add to that is um, that TCP, even though it, it was not successful in achieving national register status, I think that it was ultimately successful in providing um, some really crucial um, like triggers to force conversations about the Jordan Cove pipeline. Oh yeah. And kind of the impact on the landscape. And it's funny, we were all joking about the agency of landscapes at the very beginning, but it seems to be kind of the recurring thread unintentionally. <laughs> that it is. It's, it's all about the landscapes here and, and we have to find ways to kind of recognize, um, you know, the, the dynamic relationships we have with landscapes. Yeah. Well, and I think in, in this time of COVID and being quarantined and being kind of, you know, somewhat isolated without as much travel as we Americans are used to, like, think we've been kind of forced into the situation where we are for better or worse like figuring out our relationship with our landscape that we live in and trying to find our place in it 
Yeah. Because I think as Americans, we don't, and I don't know if, how you guys feel about this, but like, we don't have a really strong, as Euro-Americans anyhow, um, tie or to where, where we live. Yeah, especially for folks who, I, I think like increased mobility is a thing that um, almost all communities have seen since the post-war era. Yeah. Um, but that's been just a feature of my family, um, you know, since before I was born is, is we were all very mobile. Um, and there was, there was a thread going on and I saw Kirsten, you, you weighed in on it. Um, kind of the, the prompt was what did your grandparents do for jobs? Oh yeah. And it was funny to see the responses to that or not like funny. It was, it was very interesting to see the responses to that. Cause, um, a lot of the people like you included and me and, and a lot of the people that we uh, interact with as peers in the archeological community um, have working class mobile backgrounds where, you know, like our families have had to be mobile because those families are beholden to the jobs that they hold. Um, and that, that was just kind of what struck with me was, like I've moved a lot because my family had to move a lot and you know, my family had to move a lot because their parents had to move a lot and yeah, it just kind of keeps going. Um, it's just kind of interesting, but it all comes back to the damn landscape. You guys, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bunch of people doing things. things and moving around and doing stuff. Yeah. What? are things what are things <laughs> what are, what are places <laughs> what are places God. the theme yeah what just what <laughs> what that should be the title of the episode just what uh, okay <laughs> make that the title right now can you find if you can find a way to insert an emoji and find an emoji of like a joint or something that would be <laughs> So fitting. I wonder if the podcast like aggregator uh, platforms would take emojis. I've never seen a podcast title with an emoji in it. Or maybe you could do, know. dude, where's my landscape? Oh, there we go. Oh. <laughs> I love it. My Killing drop. It. All right. <laughs> I, think you, I think you win. You win the title contest. <laughs> God damn, Tia, you're back. <laughs> I'm back, motherfuckers. I'm back. <laughs> well, do you all want to cut it there? <laughs> With my uh, I mean, unless Tia crazy. has more like <laughs> straight fire to spit. <laughs> well, I do have some sick rhymes. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's awesome. I'm yeah. also starting to sweat fuse with my bed, so I think I'm yeah. uh, kind yeah. of mosaic calling it is good. <laughs> well, let's call it there. <laughs>